so, so we are continuing um, our series in Hebrews, and so we are in Sermon 13, according to my count. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, and this is going to be part one of a two-part series. In fact, I was going to do all of chapter 7 this week, um, but that I just, I considered that wasn't a good idea for your sake. And so we, we cut it in half, and so this is part one, and then literally next week we will do part two. But as we come to, to chapter 7, um, and if you don't have a Bible, we have some on, on that table back there that we'd love for you to, to take and have and, and use. Uh, but, but so as we come to chapter 7, I just want to briefly give you how we got here, because all the way back, and if you have your Bibles, you can just flip back just to see, if you're a visual learner, you can see that, that back in chapter 4, verse 14, that there, there began this, this transition to Jesus as the high priest. So there in verse 14, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So from, from 14 of chapter 4 all the way through, if you go all the way to chapter 5, to chapter 5, verse 10, so 4.14 to 5.10, we have this focus on the high priesthood of Jesus. He's passed through the heavens. He's, he's like us. He's able to sympathize with us. He's a, a giver of mercy and grace. He, he's there to help in time of need. He's, he's been appointed by God, and he's a priest forever after the order of, he uses the name, Melchizedek. And so that's in, in Hebrews 5, verse 10. But in, in, in chapter 5, verse 11, He says, about this, meaning about this order of Melchizedek, we have a lot to say, but it's hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. And so he he went away. So it's like, here's here's 4.14 to 5.10, the high priesthood of Jesus, and he gets to Melchizedek. And then he says, actually, we have a lot to say about this, but I'm going to take a little detour, and I'm just going to exhort you. And I'm going to say, you're you're immature. You should be teachers. You're not growing, and I'm worried about you. And he's going to warn them. And so this, this is the exhortation part. And then all the way in, in, in chapter 6, the last verse of chapter 6, he ended his exhortation. And so then I picked up on that, Joey. I, I got the low battery. So I didn't hear myself anymore. And I was like, wait a minute, that's different. But so I'm going to keep going. Here we go. All right, so he ends in, in, in verse 20 of chapter 6. He ends this, this exhortation section. If you look there at verse 20 of chapter 6, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of, he mentions the name again, Melchizedek. Okay, so, so here is his transition back. He's done the exhortation. Now he's going all the way back to Melchizedek. And so our passage this morning is on Melchizedek. He, he picks up where he left off in chapter 5, verse 10. And so our passage completes this return. And so beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, we're going to enter this this, um, extended argument, which is in fact the main argument of the book of Hebrews. It's going to run all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, which is where he'll he'll break off and do another exhortation. But 7, verse 1 through 10, verse 18, is this extended argument about the priesthood of Jesus, that Jesus is the greater high priest, the better, the superior high priest. And so as, he, as, he's, as he's beginning to build his case for this high priesthood of Jesus, as he's laying the foundation for the superior ministry of Jesus, he's establishing here the identity of this man, Melchizedek. 
So, so he wants them to know, okay, here, here's this guy named Melchizedek. You need to know who he was, and you need to know about the nature of his priesthood. And so what we're going to begin to see this week and into next week is that not only is Melchizedek this, this priest who was superior to Levi, which was the, the, the priest of the old covenant, which we'll say more about, but Melchizedek, Melchizedek is superior to them. But not only that, the priesthood of Melchizedek is vastly superior to the entire priesthood that came before. And so he's building this argument, and it's all based on Melchizedek. But we can't lose. The main reason he's focusing on Melchizedek is not so that we'll focus on Melchizedek, but so that we'll recognize Jesus as a type of Melchizedek has a vastly superior high priestly ministry. That Jesus is a different kind of priest like Melchizedek. Jesus is a better kind of priest like Melchizedek. And so the, the legitimacy of the high priesthood of Jesus, which is the main focus, is directly tied to this man Melchizedek and who he was in his priesthood. And so, and so this week in verses one through 10, there are a lot of historical background where we're gonna, we're gonna take a, a trip through the Genesis account of, of the, where, where Melchizedek appears. But it's central to our argument and, and this week is gonna be central to understanding what he's gonna argue next week. Okay, so if you're here this week, you, you definitely ought to come back next week. All right, if you're able, you should come back next week because this week is, is part one and then next week, Lord willing, will be part two. But again, the main idea of the book of Hebrews, which is especially true here in chapter seven, is the, the, to delineate the, the nature of Jesus' high priesthood as superior to that of, of the Levites and the, the priesthood of the old covenant. And so we will see that Jesus is a priest after the order, not of Levi, but of Melchizedek. He's not just another Aaron or son of Aaron. He's not a Levite. He's a different priest of a different priesthood, which is better which is why, big picture, for, for these individuals he's writing to in Hebrews, for them to forsake Christ and go back to the old way, misunderstands the nature of Christ's priesthood. So he's saying, hey, Christ is the great high priest. Don't forsake him to go back to Aaron or Levi or, or any Jewish system, which is his whole point. So let, well, let's, look, let's read our passage, um, Hebrews chapter 7. And in fact, you know, I'm going to read, yeah, I'll read 1 through 10. Um, and then we will, actually, I'm going to read all of, all of chapter seven. So just follow along. We're, we're going to focus on one through 10, but I'm going to read the whole, the whole chapter just for us to, to get context. So he, Hebrews chapter seven, beginning in verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then... He is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from, from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? 
For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of the weakness and uselessness, for, nothing, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one whom, who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they're prevented by death from continuing office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did not, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Okay, so that, that's all of chapter seven. We're not covering all that. We're gonna focus on verses one through 10, but let me pray for us as, as we uh, look at, at these first 10 verses. Uh, Father, I ask you, we ask you now that you, would, that you would supernaturally attend the reading and study of this, your word, as we, as we, as we have already meditated on and, and thought about the work of our great high priest on our behalf, as we've already remembered that the body that was broken and the, the blood that was shed for us, I ask that, that you'd continue through these minutes ahead, through this, this sermon, that you would increase our love for and our hope in Christ our Lord in whose name we, we pray these things. Amen. All right, so Hebrews 7, we're, we're only going through the verse, first 10 verses. And so the outline, uh, the first point is gonna be Melchizedek in Genesis. So, so I, I mean, we're just gonna establish the, the background that, that the readers would have been very familiar with as, as they're receiving this. So I, I'm just gonna recap what happens in Genesis in the, the account of, of Abraham, and it's Genesis 14. So you can write that down if you want. Um, and I'm gonna walk us through that. But, but that'll be the first point, Melchizedek in Genesis. And then verses one through three of chapter seven, we see the comparison between Melchizedek and Abraham. And then finally, the, the, the last section, verses four through 10, there's Melchizedek and Levi. Okay, so, so here we're gonna look at Melchizedek in the Old Testament, and then the comparison that's drawn out in our passage between him and Abraham and then him and Levi. Again, the point being, he's greater than both of them. So Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. So if you, you don't have to turn there. Like I said, you can write down Genesis 14. But in Genesis 14, Abraham is still fresh on his journey. So it's in Genesis chapter 12 that the Lord calls Abram. He's not even Abraham yet. He's, he's Abram. And the Lord calls him and says, you and your family every, and your possessions go to a land that I'm going to show you. And in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and his family leave Haran and then they go to a place that the Lord is going to show them. Now it just so happens that, that part of the, the people and possessions he takes is his nephew Lot. Okay, so Lot is with him. That's going to be significant. 
And so after some sojourning, at this point, Abraham has, has a lot of stuff, a lot of possessions, and, and so the, the group is getting too big, and so apparently Lot's family is, is part of the problem. So Abraham tells his nephew, Lot, he says, hey, let's, let's separate. We can't keep living together. Too many people. And so they separate, and, and Abraham defers and says, hey, you choose where you're going to go. Lot chooses the, the best looking, and, and Abraham gets the worst looking, and the Lord says, this is, this is where I'm going to meet you. This is where I'm going to bless you. And so Lot goes away. They separate, and Lot goes to a city that we would later come to recognize, but, but at the time, it's just called Sodom. So that's where he goes, and he, he dwells in, in that area. And so after that separation, that leads to the events of Genesis 14, where we find Melchizedek. And so in Genesis 14, there, there's this, this significant battle, the, the, va- the battle of the Valley of Siddim. And so, and so at this point, there's nine kings. There's a team of five kings and a team of four kings. And, the, and these are, are these, these area kings, and they're, they're waging war against one another. And so part of the five-king team is the king of Sodom. Okay, so, so he's part of this, this, this group of five. And remember, that's where Lot lives. And in the midst of this battle, so, so here's uh, th- this group of four, and, and so they are, they're defeating this group of five, and it says specifically in Genesis 14 that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah run away, and they, they fall in these pits, right? And so everyone flees, so they lose the battle. And so the enemy, what we'll call maybe this four-king alliance, right, they get the spoils. And so part of the spoils of the king of Sodom is all the people and the possessions. And so there in, in verse 12 of Genesis 14, it says that the, these conquering kings took Lot. And they took, the son, they took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom in his possessions and went their way. So, so Lot is now captured by this, these, this group of kings and being led astray, being led away. And so then one of, one of these who were part of the spoil, they, they happen to escape being captured and they run. And they, they know where Abraham lives, and they say, hey, your, your nephew is taken. And so Abraham, instead of saying, well, well, he chose that, good for him, that's what he deserves, Abraham says, no, I'm going to go get my, my nephew. And so Abraham takes 318 of his trained men. Right? He, he had trained men before David. Right? These are the trained men. There's 318, and they go, and they rescue Lot. They defeat this whole group of, of kings and rescue Lot. And so Abraham, with his small band, defeat the, the conquering kings, and they bring back Lot. And in addition to Lot, they take back all the possessions and the women and the people that had been taken. All the spoils now belong to this, this group of, of, of trained men in Abraham. And it's after this, after that defeat, that, that Genesis 14, verse 17 picks up. And so listen as I read Genesis 14, beginning verse 17. After his return... From the defeat of Shedolomer, so that's one of the kings, and the kings who were with him, after his return, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Parentheses, he was priest of God Most High. And he, that is Melchizedek, blessed Abram and said... Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom, who's there, remember Sodom, the king, he had had been defeated. Now he shows up at this meeting and he says to Abram, give me back the persons that are mine, but, but you take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, well, I'm the one who made Abram rich. 
Abraham continues, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamer take their share. These are the other kings. So he says, take it. I don't want your stuff. And so, and so that's it. That's the account of Melchizedek. That's the meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek. And that's the background to the passage in, in Hebrews chapter 7. And, and the thing that's abnormal about this event in Genesis 14, it, it's not really that Abraham with only 318 men defeat the kings. I mean, that's kind of cool. That's a cool story with a big battle that, that Abraham goes and does this. But the, what's abnormal in, in terms of what the author of Hebrews is drawing out is that this man, the king of Salem, which remember, he wasn't part of the battling kings. He just shows up. So he wasn't one of the, the, the warring kings. He shows up, and this man is not like other kings because in addition to being the king of Salem, the Genesis account also tells us that he was a priest of the most high God. And that's strange, just out of the blue. This, this king of Salem, which, which fits in, okay, we're talking about kings, but this king is also a priest of the God most high. I mean, there aren't even priests in Israel at this time. So it's strange. In Genesis 14, Abraham's still, still early on his journey. Things are still developing. And he hasn't had his son who had a son who had 12 sons. This is before Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Pharaoh and the Red Sea and Mount Sinai and the law and then the tabernacle and the Levites and the sacrificial system and the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests. It's before all of that. There's no official priesthood in Israel. And here comes, quote, a priest of the most high God. And it's strange because there's been no mention of a priest or priesthood up to this point. This is it. This priest Melchizedek and this priesthood up to this point totally disconnected from Abraham. And that's strange. Here comes a priest, the the priest of the Most High God, who, did you notice, is also a king. So this priest-king figure just kind of drops out of the sky, as it were. And it's this interaction between Abraham and this priest-king that the author of Hebrews picks up on. And, and he does so there in verses one through three. So, so look there at the point that he makes this comparison between Abraham and Melchizedek. So look there at verse one. We're, now we're, we're, you can flip back forward to Hebrews chapter seven. And there in verse one, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blessed him. And so, so this Melchizedek meets Abraham and blesses him. And this is what we just read in Genesis 14. Now, the author of Hebrews, he doesn't mention the bread and the wine, which I thought, wow, what, what, a, what a coincidence that here we're celebrating Lord's Supper, and here's this, this, this type of Christ who, out of the blue, brings bread and wine to, to, this, to this celebration, to this consecration and this tithing event, this high priest. That could be a whole sermon in and of itself. But the author mentions that Melchizedek blesses him, and he blesses him on behalf of the one true God, the God who's called Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only true God, possessor of heaven and earth. So this isn't some some pagan priest of some pagan God. This is a priest of the most high God who blesses Abraham. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who's delivered your enemies into your hands. And he continues, verse two, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. And this, again, there's no tithe law set in place. There's no biblical precedent for this. Nevertheless, Abraham meets this priest of the God Most High and gives him a tenth of everything, who, remember, is identified as a priest king of the Most High God. And so there's no explanation as to where Melchizedek had come from or or why Abraham had given him a tenth of of all the spoils. It's simply recorded, they meet, he blesses him, and he gives him a, a tenth of the spoils. And so it's not explained where he came from, why he's there, why Abraham seems to, to know, okay, here's what I'm supposed to do. Here's what's required of me, but, but that's what happens. 
But the author does, so he doesn't explain that, but what he does explain is the meaning of the name. And so he says there in the middle of verse two, he is, this means Melchizedek, he's first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And and so this is a literal definition of his name. So so Melchizedek, there are these two root words, two root Hebrew words that that are king and righteousness. So Melech and Sedek are are these two Hebrew words that are combined and make up Melchizedek. So when he says he is by definition of his translation of his name, king of righteousness, that's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. He's referring to the name Melchizedek, but there's more because it's not only that reference to the name he says there in verse two, he's by translation of the name king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. And so again, he's doing a translation for us. King of Salem, literally translated is king of peace. Melchizedek is said not only be the, the king of righteousness according to his name Melchizedek, but he's also the king of Salem, which is, maybe you've heard the, the, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. And so this word Salem is, is closely identified with that. And so he's the king of, not only of righteousness, but the king of peace. And so our author draws this out. This is a mysterious priest king. And it's this priest, this king of righteousness and king of peace, which it's worth noting, as as one commentator does, that that these concepts of righteousness and peace are appropriate for this one Melchizedek who points to the Messiah who would make righteousness and peace possible for all God's people. So so even here, there's a foreshadowing of of, of righteousness and peace. But but all all that said is that's who this man is called. That's his name, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And other than those two names, nothing else is really said in reference to Melchizedek. But, but notice as he, he continues there to verse three, because, because as, he's, as he continues in verse three, he is, he, he's reading into the Genesis 14 account. Right? Because, because there's some assumptions that are made in the account of Genesis 14, right? It assumes that Abraham recognizes the significance of Melchizedek. Right? It's not explained, it's just assumed. Abraham knows this, this man is powerful and this is what he's supposed to do. It's, it assumes he recognizes, I, I need to give him a 10th. And I give to the priest. I, I, so Abraham doesn't say, well, wait a minute, who are you? Who are you to bless me in the name of Moses? I'm the one who knows God. I'm the, I'm the father. I'm the chosen one. Who are, no, Abraham recognizes. This is a priest of the most high God who's blessed me. And my response, my fitting response is to tithe, to, to give him what, what, what has been given to me. And so even though there's no description of how Melchizedek became high priest, there's no description of, of the lineage of Melchizedek, there's no ceremony, no appointment throughout Genesis prior to this or after this, it's simply assumed that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. And so in turning to verse 3 of chapter 7, the author of Hebrews picks up on those assumptions, and he makes his own assumptions about what is not said in the Genesis account. Now, we can't do this. We can't read and say, well, well, this is why this wasn't mentioned or, or this was mentioned, right? We can't do this. But the author of Hebrews does it. So look at verse three. You'll understand. Follow verse three. He, so he's talking about Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So though it isn't specifically stated in the Genesis account, the assumption that the author of Hebrews is making regarding Melchizedek is that he has no father or mother or genealogy because it's not mentioned there. So, so the Genesis account doesn't explain. And so he says, well, there's an argument, an assumption on, on, based on what's not said. No lineage is mentioned. So it's not significant. It's not important to why he's serving as this priest. And so in looking back at this meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews highlights what is not said namely his genealogy. 
And so when he, when he says that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, I don't think he means literally that, that he, he doesn't have a mom or dad. That, that's not the point. His point is in reference to his lineage and his appointment as high priest. He, he's not saying this is some, some form of supernatural being. Now, that's not his point. His point is that Melchizedek appears on the scene without any mention of why or how he became a priest of the Most High God. There's no mention of Melchizedek prior to Genesis 14, and there really isn't a mention of him after Genesis 14, other than in Psalm 10, Psalm 110, it talks about his priesthood, but his person, Genesis 14, 17, and 18, is really it in terms of him, the person, the priest. And it's significant, it's why this is being drawn out by the author of Hebrews, because it helps us understand the uniqueness of Melchizedek as a high priest, especially when a lineage-less Melchizedek is compared with an Aaron and a Levite in the Old Testament priesthood that was in place and established. It's significant that, that, that Melchizedek has no genealogy because in this case, with Aaron and Levite, lineage was everything. It was really the only thing. It didn't care if you were godly, if you, if you, did, if, if you had any character. All that mattered was who your father was, and if, if you qualified, you were a priest. And so what stands out about Melchizedek is there's no mention of lineage. Not only is the lack of genealogy significant, but it's also significant that, that nothing's ever said about a succession plan for Melchizedek. He appears, and then he doesn't appear again. And so when it came to the old, old covenant priesthood, lineage is what qualified you. Guess what disqualified you? When you died. When you died, you were done. But there's a su- succession plan Right? When you died, the next one just stepped up and filled the place, whether it's your son or, or someone else, the next in line would, would continue the priesthood so that the priesthood would continue. It didn't matter that the priest died. It wasn't, the priesthood wasn't prohibited by death. But when it comes to Melchizedek, not only is his life, his, his beginning of days mentioned, his end of days is never mentioned either. The succession plane of the order of Melchizedek is never explained. Now, I want to be clear. I think it should be obvious that Melchizedek did die. I think he did die. I think he was a man. I think he was a real man. But this priesthood, this mysterious priesthood that just drops out of the sky, as it were, was left unoccupied. No one filled the office. And so even though there's no priest, that doesn't mean there was no priesthood. Right? There's a difference, right? A priesthood that, that, that continues, but a uh, priest who die, but a priesthood continues is different than a priesthood that never dies because a priest never dies. And I think that's the point he's drawing out. When he, when he says that Melchizedek continues as priest forever, he's highlighting that, that there's no mention of any familial references to this man, Melchizedek. So that he can say, figuratively, he wasn't born, he didn't die. We know nothing of, of where he came from or, or how he died. And in this sense, he says the author, or in this sense, the author of Hebrews says that Melchizedek resembles the son of God. And so it's this, this undying, indestructible life that you heard it later in chapter seven, we'll get to next week. It's, it's the, the lack of death of the order of the Melchizedek that, that's gonna be a huge argument that he makes in regards to Jesus, that's next week. But here, Melchizedek resembles the son of God in that he has no beginning or ending of days, which is exactly what the priest function of Jesus, how there's no beginning, no end. He was declared by an oath and he continues forever. So that, that's going to be picked up next week. But Melchizedek, it said, resembles the son of God, which I, I just want to make one comment because many do, maybe you, you here have heard this and you believe this, that Melchizedek was, was some type of a pre-incarnate Christ, maybe a theophany, that, that this is a, a, an incarnation before the incarnation. 
Um, and that's why people say, well, he's never born and never died. And so that's, that's what he's talking about. Um, that doesn't make sense. One, because it says, not that he was the son of God, but that he resembled the son of God. If it was the son of God, I think you could say, this Melchizedek was the son of God. But he doesn't say, this is, this is Hebrews author, post Jesus saying he resembles the son of God. Right? So if he was the son of God, I think he could have very easily said he was, but he said he resembled. And so when you say something resembles something else, it's a comparison, which means they're not the same. Right? So, so Melchizedek is a type of Christ who resembles Christ, the son of, son of God, but he's not Christ. And the second reason that I, that I think this doesn't make sense is that Jesus did have a father and mother, didn't he? His lineage is a big deal in the gospels. And so for him to say, hey, he had no father or mother. Well, okay, if you want to separate an eternal personhood from, from human personhood, but, but that's, that's not categorically how he's talking. He's saying this guy didn't have mother and father. When if it's Jesus, Jesus did have mother and father. The one, the man, Jesus Christ, the great high priest who's the focus of Hebrews was very clearly descended from a specific lineage. I mean, read the beginning of Matthew's gospel, right? It's very clear where Jesus came from and it's very important where he came from. So his lineage is known and, and significant. So I think, I think Melchizedek was a real person. I don't think he was a pre-incarnate Christ. I think he was a real man. He was a priest of the most high God. And here, as, he, as we move into to verses four through 10, the lack of death of Melchizedek sets the stage for Jesus as high priest after the order of Melchizedek to continue forever, which is the point that's gonna be next week. He's superior, his priesthood will never end. But having shown this comparison between, or this interaction between Moses, or between Melchizedek and Abraham, maybe he transitions now to, to focus on Melchizedek and Levi. So look there at verse four. Melchizedek and Levi. So he, after recounting Abraham and Melchizedek, he says, verse four, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And so, and so he exclaims, how great this man was. See how great he was. And, and that, the greatness of Melchizedek, that, that's highlighted in verse four, requires or is dependent upon the greatness of Abraham. Right? Because in reading the Genesis story and understanding the role of Abraham and his connection with, with all that would come after him, with all the history of Israel, it's easy to see why Abraham was foundational. While he was the father of the Jews, he was the beginning. And he was a foundational figure in the life of God's people. In the story of the Old Testament, he was great. He was crucial to God's plan. He was a significant figure. And while the author of Hebrews doesn't dispute that, he simply wants us to stop and consider for a second, not the greatness of Abraham, but the greatness of Melchizedek. Because as great as Abraham was, if you stop and consider what happened in this interaction, Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek. And so he says, see how great he was. The father who had many sons, many sons who had him. I'm one of them, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. This, this one was inferior to the superior Melchizedek. So he deserves our attention, the author of Hebrews would be saying. He's going to draw out the greatness of Melchizedek. There in verse 5, he continues, and now he transitions to the comparison between Melchizedek and the Levites. So verse 5, those descendants of Levi who receive priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. And so now he's focusing on, on the old covenant, on the, the sacrificial system. And he says, the descendants of the Levites who receive the priestly office, they have a commandment to take tithes from their people. And so if you don't remember the Levites, these are one of the 12 tribes of Jacob. And so you have Abraham, who has Isaac, who has Jacob, 
who then has 12 special sons. There are a lot more sons, but, but the 12 sons then become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of his sons was Levi. And when God calls Moses, which is significant, you can read over this if you, if you read in Exodus in our Bible reading plan. You read this a few weeks ago. But Moses was a Levite. Did you know that? Moses was a son of Levi, and, and so was his brother Aaron. And so when the law is given, the Lord says, okay, Moses, your brother Aaron is going to be a priest, and it's his sons. And so that's why it's the Levites, right? That, that is the, the tribe that are there, the priests, and they receive the priestly office. So that's what he's saying in verse 5. Lineage was key. In fact, there's a time, and it's in Nehemiah chapter um, Chapter 7, I think it's Nehemiah 7 or Nehemiah 6, where, where the, there's these men who say, hey, we're priests, and then they go to the genealogy. They can't establish their, their identity, and so they said, actually, you're unclean. You actually can't even take of the meal until, until a priest has been raised up. Your, gen, your genealogy cannot be proved, so you're disqualified. And so, so under the old way, lineage was everything. And so this is the tribe appointed under the law, under the old covenant, to receive the, the high priest. And these high priests receive from their brothers, from those like them, right? Because even though there's a distinction between the Levites and all the other tribes, there is a commonality. They're, they're still all sons of Abraham. They're still all Israelites. They're all brothers in this sense. So, so even in that system, the priests receive tithes from their brother, not from the inferior ones. They're from their, their brothers. They just happen to be from one tribe and they're from another tribe. So he says, that's how it is with the Levites. But that isn't the case, he says, with Abraham and Melchizedek. Melchizedek isn't a brother of Abraham. He's not Abraham's brother when he shows up on the scene. He's not of the line of Levi. That's the point. Look at verse six. But this man who does not have his descent from them, right, he's not a Levite, he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Abraham was chosen. He was great in God's plan. He was the one. He's going to be a blessing to all peoples. And yet this one, this great one, was blessed by Melchizedek, which means, verse 7, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So inferior, superior. He's not on the same plane as Abraham. He is superior to him because Abraham sees him and says, I'm, I'm going to give you a tithe, and I'm going to receive your blessing, right? The, the superior blesses the inferior. That's, that's the main point. Melchiz Melchizedek was vastly superior to even Abraham. It's beyond dispute, he says in verse 7. He continues there, verse 8, this contrast. In the one case, so, so in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, the tithe is received. He's talking about Melchizedek. The tithe is received by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So here's the contrast between the longevity of the priest. In one case, the reference to the Levites, they're mortal men, which means they all die. They're all, they, all, they, they all are appointed, but then they die. In that case, the priests collect tithes, but then they die. And the result is they no longer receive tithes from their brothers. Right? Their death prevents their service. However, this other case, when he refers to Melchizedek, in the other case, tithes are received by one who it said lives forever, or testify that he lives, and whose death is never mentioned. It's an ongoing life. Now, hopefully you're, you're with me. This is Melchiz Melchizedek. He received a tithe from Abraham, and nothing is ever said about his death. He's, nothing is ever said about the succession plan of his priesthood. And so again, it doesn't mean that he doesn't die, but the point is that Jesus is of this priesthood that, that, that is eternal, that, that there is no succession plan. 
And then next week we'll get into more of that. And in fact, if we just step back for a second and, and recognize that the situation of the Hebrews as he's writing, the temptation for them to forsake Christ and return to the old way is an abandonment of the priest who lives forever. So to leave Christ is to go back to, to a temporal priesthood. When the, the great high priest has come, the one who lives forever after the order of Melchizedek, you don't want to leave him. You don't want to forsake him. So don't, so don't, don't abandon him. That, that's his, his main point here. And then finally look there at verses 9 and 10. One might even say, now here he, he's speculating, but, but I think, I think this, this would provoke them. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of, of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, Levi didn't literally pay tithes through Abraham, but the point is that Levi who was the son of Jacob, for whom the priestly line was named and established, he wasn't even alive yet when Melchizedek meets Abraham and, and receives the tithe from Abraham when he's blessed by the superior Melchizedek. So Levi wasn't even on the scene. His priesthood was a long way from being established, and yet there was already this established priesthood that Abraham recognized, a priesthood that had been ordained by the Most High God. And so the point being, not only is Melchizedek superior to Abraham, he's also even more so superior to Levi, who came long after Abraham and was, and was blessed by Melchizedek. And so this man, this priest king, is superior to Abraham and superior to Levi, and by necessity, superior to every other priest that they had ever known or would ever know. He is the superior one. And it, this is the reason that the readers, readers of Hebrews, despite the appeal of the old, despite whatever temptations or appeals uh, of returning to the old, they must not abandon Christ. They were to hold fast because he's the superior one. He's the greater high priest. And that's the point that, that he, he wants to emphasize over and over and over. And so, and so as, we, as we close, I don't, have, I don't have many points of application. I just have the one point. The, 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 the exhortation for them to hold fast to the superior greater high priest is also the exhortation that, that we should hear in light of this. It's not just for them, it's for us too. And in and, and this quote, I, I have a slide of this, but, but here's our application. If we desire life and true forgiveness of sins, we must continue to hold fast to the confession that proclaims Jesus as the Melchizedekian priest. That, that's our application, holding fast to Christ. That's been the application throughout Hebrews. That's the application today. That'll be the application, Lord willing, next week. And so as we close, I, I would implore you, as I would implore myself, let us hold fast to Christ. Let us not abandon the one who is the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the one who's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. Let us hold fast our confession. We have a high priest who's laid down his very life for us and whoever lives to intercede for us. And so let us with confidence draw near to him that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let, let me pray for us.